but at the same time, I was just so let down by God um, that I really started to step away from like, maybe it doesn't work that way. Mm. And, and part of it too was when a lot of these things failed and I went back to those people that had told me, oh, just step out in faith. God's always going to take care of you. At the last minute, you'll get a check in your mailbox for the exact amount that you need to cover your mortgage. Mm. And the thing that they said was, well, like, did you pray? How, how, much, how much time are you spending each day in prayer? Or like, do you have a sin issue that you haven't dealt with? Or And all these things. And I'm like, why is it my fault? <laughs> like, you're giving him the pass. That's bullshit, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, My mom turned 18 in the 1960s and she doesn't remember Stonewall. To be fair, she can own a beer kid That the bricks launched at police Would compel me to exist And I think about that now down the ballot The ones I love and I don't know yet I voted for you Oh, what a terrible Watch the sky fall as it carried through with this. I spent the rest of the night freaking out. I had to get high just to put myself down. Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. This is episode number 141. Uh, and this is my second time recording this intro because I don't know what just happened. I recorded it and I hit stop and then the, the, the program just crashed. And I thought I lost the whole episode, which really would have made me mad. But thankfully, I didn't. The episode is still intact, but all of the work I did on the episode is gone. And so I must do it again, uh, including recording this intro I don't even remember everything I said the last time. I was just rambling, so it's probably good that I had to redo it because it's been a long day. And so I just turned on this mic, and I felt like I had a friend in you that I could talk to, and I just started to pour out my woes and my heart. But uh, we're going to try this again. Uh, this is episode number 141, and uh, today we're talking to Brandon Dragon, who wrote a book called The Wages of Grace. Uh, Brandon and I went to school together in high school. Uh, we both shared the same experience in the private Christian school that I went to uh, in New Jersey, and it was a very conservative evangelical school. I picked up some good things from there, of course, but I also picked up a whole lot of not-so-good things, uh, in particular, probably more so in middle school uh, than high school. Uh, but we talk a little bit about our experience there, talk about his book, The Wages of Grace. It is a fiction book. Uh, Brandon is the first fiction author I've had on the podcast, mainly because I don't really read fiction books. I never could really get into them. Um, I've read like half the Harry Potter series, uh, three pages of a Lord of the Rings book. <laughs> I used to read the Goosebumps book books when I was a kid. Uh, so I read those. Um, some C.S. Lewis, some of the fiction stuff, but really never really got into fiction as much as I've tried. What's that other guy? That other Ted Decker? Was that his name? He wrote like some of those creepy books. Um, something about piercing the darkness. I read, I read some of those. Never could really get into it. I just felt like I was reading something and wasting my time because it's not like it's the book isn't actually teaching me anything. But now I'm realizing that actually fiction books can teach you something. Who would have known? Shocker! You learn something new. I'm 39 years old and I had a revelation while I was reading Brandon's book. Uh, but the book is a, it's a great story with a great. A lot of great points in the story that really tie into faith and uh, the topic of forgiveness and love and all sorts of stuff. So really good stuff. Uh, we don't talk too much about the storyline of the book because we don't want to give away any spoilers, but we talk more about the themes that come up in the book. And uh, we kind of explore our shared background and context um, as being raised in the evangelical world. So we talk about a lot of deconstruction type stuff uh, in this episode. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, a couple things. Number one, are you part of the Facebook 
group yet, the What If Project community. It is a closed Facebook group, and uh, you need to get in there because exciting stuff is happening. Number one, we have about 200, I don't know, 280 people maybe in there. Everybody's asking questions, sharing resources. Nobody's trying to convert anybody. There's no Bible beating, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, just really good interaction, really good conversation, and uh, you are more than welcome to join. And I hope you do because number two, we have some events going on with the community, uh, all virtual events. Uh, last month, we talked to Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren wrote a new book in January. He stopped by the Facebook group last month, did a Zoom call with us. We got about 30 people on the call, and you get FaceTime with Brian McLaren to ask him your questions about faith, about doubt, about his book, about your journey, about God, about the Bible, about hell, whatever it is you wanted to ask, he was willing to dialogue about it. And so 30 people got on that call, asked him some questions, and it was really, really good. It went so good that next month in April, we're doing the same thing, but with Diana Butler Bass. Diana is writing a brand new book uh, called Freeing Jesus, and she's going to stop by the show oh, right on Easter time. Uh, to talk to us about the book. But in April, she's doing a Zoom event with us. So another Zoom event, just like we do with Brian. Uh, there's an invite in the Facebook group. You can say going, can't go, maybe I can go, whatever. The link will be there like a couple days before the event. Uh, but she's going to answer questions people have about the book, about their faith, about God, about all the different things. It's a free event. Uh, all that we ask is that you purchase a book, whether it's from Amazon uh, christianbook.com, Barnes & Nobles, wherever it is that you find your books. I uh, Just purchase a book, read or skim as much as you can. I just come prepared to ask her some sort of question, whatever whatever is burning in your heart to ask Diana Butler Bass. Uh, you will have FaceTime with her to ask her your questions. So uh, pretty, pretty good stuff. We have another one planned for the summer um, as well and probably do another one in the fall. But the first one went so good. I was like, this was awesome. Like afterwards, my wife was like, dude, this was a lot of fun. And I was like, yeah, I didn't expect it to be as cool as it was. Like I thought it would be kind of awkward, but people just jumped right in, asked questions. Brian was like super interactive. And it was, I was like, we got to do this again. This was wild. So we're going to do it. And uh, yeah, so what if Project Community, I'll put the link to it in the show notes. Other links in the show notes, Patreon and buymeacoffee.com are two places to go to support the show. Uh, the Heretic Shop, if you want to pick up a hoodie, uh, you want to pick up some t-shirts, some sweatpants, there's all some new new designs in there for the spring, uh, all loud colors with some obnoxious stuff on it, so <laughs> head over there and check it out at the Heretic Shop, and special music today. Have you heard of Semler? Uh, just Google Semler, and uh, S-E-M-L-E-R, and you will see a story. Uh, Semler has re recently released an album called Preacher's Kid, and it was listed on iTunes as a Christian album, and it is a Christian album, but it's not that kind of Christian album. <laughs> and a lot of people like myself really loved it, and a lot of people really didn't. Uh, but it's uh, basically Semler, her father is a, uh, is a pastor. The album is called Preacher's Kid, and it's basically her story of deconstruction. It's her journey. It's an album that's filled with questions and doubts and all different things. And it's really, really good. Like it put words on so many feelings that I have and it's beautifully done. You've, you've got to go listen to this, but all the music in the episode today and probably next week and maybe the week after, I don't know. I love this album so much. And I reached out to her and I said, Hey, I have this podcast. Can I put your music in my podcast? Because your music is good. And she's like, yeah, go for it. So I'm going to take her up on that, and I'm just going to put it in as many episodes as I can. Uh, but Semler, head over to iTunes, head over to Spotify, uh, check it out, download her music, uh, go on Facebook, go on Instagram, go on Twitter, all the places, show her some love. Uh, really, really good stuff. So all that to say, my friends, I made it through a second recording of the intro, and I think I hit all the points I made in the first time, and I don't think I rambled quite as much as I did. Uh, but this is episode number 141, and it's my conversation with my friend, uh, my high school classmate, Brandon Dragon. Enjoy. If there's a good man, you, you killed him today. 
Took him out for a drink and then you put him in his grave You drove him outside of town, far away from his house So when the bullet rang out, no one else heard a sound There's a good man, you, he's dead in the dirt But he'll be survived by the people you hurt And they'll gather in masses Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with my friend Brandon Dragon, who wrote a book called The Wages of Grace. And so, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to connect with you. Thank you so much for having me, Glenn. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. So Brandon and I went to the same high school, uh, Hawthorne Christian Academy, aka HCA. And uh, I graduated in 2000. And Brandon, you were 2003, was it? Yes, 2003. Okay. Now I'm sure we could probably do an entire episode or, or 10 on our experience at HCA. Uh, as it, yeah, it's what I would probably call a super conservative uh, evangelical private school. And uh, I've had, I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of therapy to help me navigate through some of the baggage I picked up uh, during, yeah, those, sure. during those years. Uh, but yeah, so Brandon and I went to the same high school and I was thinking about it today. Like, I think it's crazy how our lives have taken these twists and turns and somehow or another divine intervention, fate, chance, whatever the universe has kind of connected us all these years later. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and if not fate in the universe, or maybe one in the same, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. Um, good, old, we, good old Mark. <laughs> we, we ran, you know, sometimes I just call him fate. That's right. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, because we you know, kind of ran into each other, reconnected on Facebook. Um, and honestly, I don't, uh, I know that my cousin was in your class. Um, I mean, I, I don't, you were a senior. I was a freshman, brand new at the school. So I don't know that we ever actually said two words to each other the whole year that we were there at the school together. Um, but yeah, it's super cool how uh, all these years later, we kind of reconnected. And, when, you know, when I saw the stuff that you were writing, I was like, oh, my gosh, we've been on such a similar journey. <laughs> so yeah. very cool. And I didn't even know, I don't even think I knew of you when I was there. Maybe I did, but I, I don't remember. But I, yeah, that, the whole the whole season was a blur. <laughs> oh, for sure. I was just trying to be as inconspicuous as possible. <laughs> that makes two of us, man. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll spin back to our uh, HCA conversation in a little bit. But uh, to kind of kick it off for our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with you and uh, your work, maybe tell us who, who are you? What do you do? Some of the, the highlights of your of your story. Sure, sure. Um, so I grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey, which is northeastern New Jersey. Um, I went to Belmont University in Nashville. Hmm. Uh, as soon as I graduated high school, um, wanted to get some personal freedom and also thought I was going to be a rock star like everybody that comes to Nashville. <laughs> Um, I met my, uh, my wife of nearly 15 years now, uh, mm. while I was in college, um, or we were in college. And so, um, my wife, Jamie and I got married pretty young. Um, I decided the music industry was not something I wanted to be a part of, mm. um, from a performance standpoint. Um, but yeah, we still live in the Nashville area. We've got two daughters, um, what I can say as I was giving just some thought to my story is, um, you know, I'm 35 now, almost 36. And so mm -hmm. with some time and some distance, looking back on what was kind of the craziness of my teen years and my twenties, my life just seems to be a slowly unfurling story. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, if you know what that feels like, but it's like, nothing seems to happen quick when it's happening. But then you look back and you're like, wow, I've come a long way. Yeah. So yeah, I worked a, a series of jobs just trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life. Um, I mean, I've delivered furniture, I've sold jewelry, worked in nonprofits. Um, most Many recently, 
Well, yeah. Uh, most recently I did video production with a good friend of mine, um, for, for several years. Mm. Uh, and then currently, um, I'm a JD candidate at Belmont's college of law, oh, wow. um, scheduled to graduate in 2022. Um, so you could be really, my one phone call. I can be your one phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I'm actually mainly hoping to practice in the area of criminal defense. Okay. Um, kind of why I got into law school. Uh, I just, I believe every person has value and deserves an advocate to be firmly in their corner uh, while they're being ground up by the machine called the criminal justice system. Wow. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of it right now. Um, Like I said, I grew up writing, um, wrote a lot of music, uh, kind of put it on the back burner after I got married and started working and um, but just always had that creative bug. And so, uh, the fiction just started, started coming out at some point. That's awesome. And I love what you said about how life sometimes like it feels in the moment, like it's unfolding so slowly, but when you look back on it, like it all happened so quickly. And like, I, I definitely feel that like, even when I look back, like on high school and then college and seminary, like, um, pastoring a church and going back to school, like it all seemed like yeah. I was trudging through muddy water, but Absolutely. now when I look back on it, I'm like, man, I was like hyperspeed, you know, and there's so, yeah. there's so much that I see now that I didn't see then that came into the story to make me who I am today. Oh, for sure. So let's jump into the book, um, a little bit and, sure. uh, maybe we'll talk about our shared upbringing as well. Yeah. Uh, but first of all, uh, like you said, you're a fiction writer and, uh, you're the first one I've had on the show. Uh, oh, maybe right. probably because as I mentioned before we hit record, uh, so it was the first fiction book I've read, maybe outside of Harry Potter. <laughs> I never really got into it. Uh, but your book, uh, especially for our listeners, is very different. I don't know. You might have turned me. I really enjoyed the story, uh, kind of the way you you told it, the themes you wove throughout it. Uh, like I said, I'm three quarters of the way through. So you tell me there's a, a big ending. So no spoilers. Don't yeah. Don't ruin it for me. Don't ruin it for the listeners. Uh, but have you always enjoyed writing fiction? Like how, how long have you been doing this? Now you said that you you got into it, but like, when did this, when did you start to realize like, oh, this is like my thing? Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I've, my whole life, I've kind of had that creative bug. Hmm. Um, my mom actually tells a story about uh, a parent teacher conference she had with my fourth grade teacher, hmm. um, where the fourth, my teacher told my mom that, you know, when I give a most a writing assignment, most of the kids will like, they'll come up to my desk with like a paragraph written and they'll say, is this enough? Like, can I be done now? Mm. And she said, your son, Brandon will come to my desk and ask for more paper. Yes. So ultimate nerd. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, but I, I, for the longest time <laughs> I had ideas, I, I started projects, but I just, I completely lacked the discipline to really see anything through. Mm. Um, and then this story, The Wages of Grace, just dropped out of the sky. Hmm. Um, I was, I was, I guess about, about 24 or so when it hit me. Um, I was actually working, uh, doing that jewelry job. I was working for a manufacturer as a rep. And so um, my territory was Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and the Florida Panhandle. Hmm. So I was on the road wow. a lot. Yeah, and uh, was somewhere between Memphis and home on Interstate 40, and this idea of two brothers fighting over a girl, something happens to her, and they're at each other's throats, mm. just like fell into my lap, and so I actually um, had to pull over into a gas station and was like furiously scribbling notes. Mm. Um, I started working on it, and. Um, gave up on it so many times because mm. I am like by far my own harshest critic. Yes. Me um, too. <laughs> and like, you know, if, yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you may not be terribly concerned with like fiction in general, but like the fact that Cormac McCarthy exists, mm. uh, he's the guy that wrote no country for old men and blood Meridian. And um, he's like my favorite author. The fact that he exists almost kept me from writing period because oh. I was just like, I'll never be Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> so, um, um, but, you know, I actually lost the first three chapters in a computer that went down. It was not a oh, Mac. No. So that was a big lesson for me. Yikes. Um, not that I'm sponsored by Apple or anything, but uh, <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I, I just, there was something about it that was like, you know what, man, even if nobody ever reads this thing, just like finish it for you. Yeah. And even if it's 10 people that read it, this is a story worth telling. And, mm-hmm. and that just, that there was just something there that I couldn't, I couldn't say no to. And so um, the novel ended up taking almost 10 years to draft Mm. um, because it, you know, it was just such a big project. Um, My wife was kind enough to let me take a couple trips, like rented some cabins out in the woods for a weekend just to, to, to really crank on it. Mm. Um, Finally finished it. And, you know, then went through, I mean, I I pretty much did everything myself as far as the editing, um, all of that kind of thing. And so it was just a real labor of love, but, but I felt, um, I felt like it was something that needed to be said and, and a story that, that needed to be told. So that's awesome. Did you have, uh, in, in high school, did you have Mrs. Faber as your creative writing teacher? Um, do you remember? I did have Mrs. Faber. I know. I think I had her my freshman year and then maybe my senior year, she came back. I had a couple other teachers in between, but, um, yeah, you know, interestingly, uh, it was actually in college that, um, I started to believe in myself as a writer. Mm. Um, I was a music business major at Belmont, which is like, you know, like at the time, at least like three fourths of the school was music business. (laughs) Um, but I had professors from several different disciplines that Mm. were like, they, they would hand me a paperback and be like, you're the first music business student I've had that can write, please. Like, you know, like <laughs> I had <awesome>. English professors <laughs> trying to convince me to, to change my major and everything. That's awesome. Um, and I had one fiction class in particular with uh, Dr. Sandra Hutchins um, at Belmont, and she was just so encouraging and um, really made me feel like you have something here go with it and yeah and that was that was huge for me that's awesome yeah i asked about mrs faber because uh that i took her for creative writing in my senior year and i remember just the way she like really encouraged my writing and she really just said like you know you you should keep writing when you yeah. leave high school and i was like oh and so when i got to college like i just started to enjoy writing more like obviously there's a lot of papers and stuff like that to write and then into seminary and in seminary they would some of the professors would often say like for a final exam you can either do like a multiple choice exam or you can write a 15 to 20 page paper and all the students of course wanted to do the multiple choice I was like oh I'll do the 20 page paper people are like are you crazy I'm like it won't take me that long like I I love to do it you know and I, I would just I would felt like I excelled so much in that and then like I had one professor who, you know, I, I wrote one, I wrote a paper for him and I wrote it like in a really, I don't know, I was like experimenting with like a crazy style, like a very Rob Bellish kind of style. And I still sure. kind of write that way. And I wrote the whole paper, like in a master's degree, like class in that format. And he's like, That's normally cool. any student, I would give them an F, but he said, <laughs> did you wrote this? He's like, it's brilliant. And he's like, just doing this so like then to go back to our original point like it seems like in the in those moments like those times seem to trudge by but now it seems like those days were yesterday but they had so those instances formed me so much as to who i am today no absolutely and that's you know part of it for me too is and i don't know if this i mean obviously this is something in my psychology but like Mm -hmm. talking about all the jobs that i've had i have always felt like a fake in Mm. every single job I've had. Mm. Like, I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't, you know, like my biggest fear with like the the jewelry job I started was like, I didn't know anything about diamonds, you know? And my my boss, who was great, but he was just like, you're not going to need to know that when you go (laughs) sell to a jeweler. But I'm like, okay, but I feel like a fraud if I don't know this and I am selling to a jeweler. Um, And it was really the same thing with the writing. And that's why I think... um, you know, having that affirmation from somebody who you respect from somebody with an education who is like, you know, I see something in what you're doing is, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely huge. And, and really a, you know, a life, uh, life altering moment in a lot of ways and, and alters the way that you see yourself. Yeah, that's so true. So we don't want to give away like any spoilers for the book, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to ask you, and I I mentioned this beforehand, so you know that it's coming, but if you could read for us your favorite, 
uh, passage from your book and maybe use that section to kind of set up the storyline for our listeners, what they can kind of expect if they go and buy it, which they should do right now. They should hit pause. They should go to Amazon or whatever, <laughs> buy the book. But are you down for that? Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, you read your favorite part and set it up for us. Cool. Uh, and, and actually, I'm just going to read the intro because um, it's somewhat poetic, probably more poetic than the rest of the novel, but Beautiful. Um, it sets the story up nicely. So. Let's do it. I've got it in front of me, so I'm going to follow along. <laughs> All right. He could taste salt on his tongue as the waves broke around him, whether the gentle flavor lingered because of the misty spray or the tender touch of her lips, he could not be sure. He sat wrapped in a wool blanket, the sun bright through hazy clouds, the ocean pulsing in perfect rhythm. His feet planted in the cold, wet sand, he had never been more happy. She floated effortlessly over the waves, as far as the moon and as close as his heartbeat. Her soft, rosy lips nearly touched his ear as he gently bit his bottom lip. She softly whispered his name. Her beauty was ravishing and she didn't even know it. Delicate strands of perfect ash-brown hair fell smoothly over her bare, freckled shoulders. He would have tied a millstone around his neck and plunged himself into the sea for just one more kiss. In the next instant, there were rocks below, jagged and sharp. He stood 40 feet above on the edge of the precipice while the sea, rough sea, crashed spectacularly against the boulders below. Birds picked ruthlessly at the carcasses of dead fish, unwilling to leave them mercifully to their eternal rest. The tips of the rocks gleamed in the gray sunlight, the raging sea roaring against them deafeningly. He closed his eyes and imagined flinging himself toward them, but he knew from previous experience that he would only wake again in his bed, dejected but unharmed. He recoiled in surprise when he heard his name again. He looked up and saw her in the distance, flowing white dress whipping in the wind. She stood erect at sea, his very own Venus beckoning him. Tears streamed down his wind-beaten face as his arms stretched toward her, but the distance between them was impassable. His old muscles cramped with longing, longing for just one more touch, one more embrace, one more tender word. The rain began to fall heavily as it always did, and the wind began to howl as he was certain it would, and he knew that once more he had to say goodbye. Too great, however, was the disquiet of his soul to utter mere words. Slowly, silently, she began to sink. He watched for the thousandth time in horror, unable to intervene. He also knew that she would return the following night and that the aching in his soul would never dissipate, would never relent. It has been said that time heals all wounds, but this is untrue. Some wounds only turn gangrenous with time. There was unremitting sorrow in this subconscious nightly ritual, but there was also the numbing consolation that at least he had seen her again in all her glory. His eyelids fluttered rapidly in the dark as his mind's eye watched her calmly submerge in the black, foaming sea. He told her that he loved her and that was all. She sank to her waist, her breasts, her neck, her nose, and her eyes without panic, without struggle or fear. Then he could see her no more. Her name was Hope. Yes. So this is a dream, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the advice that they, that, you know, any kind of author's blog will tell you is don't start your novel with a dream. Um, <laughs> Look at you bucking this system. <laughs> exactly. It's like writing a paper in Rob Bell style for your math. Exactly. It. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah. So that's so kind of the setup, um, you know, that that's the main character. Um, he, uh, his name is Thierry Larocque and uh, he grew up with an older brother, Marty, uh, to a, uh, an immigrant mother, single mother who died early on in their life. Um, so they grew up impoverished in the middle of the great depression as immigrants. And, um, so Thierry ended up, uh, kind of having his own, uh, uh, ideal love story, I guess, you know, meeting the love of his life very early on. And then, uh, uh, some things happen and, uh, you know, he loses her and um, 
in a lot of ways kind of blames his blames his brother for it and, mm. and can't let that go. Mm. So it's fair to say that the kind of major theme of the book then is forgiveness, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's that's definitely um, definitely the main the main element that I'm I'm kind of pushing on for sure. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about maybe some of your thoughts about forgiveness, and maybe maybe even in particular, you know, the the forgiveness of of God, because all that kind of ties together. Uh, but how is like how has your thoughts about forgiveness evolved over the years? Because I imagine you know looking back, even at my time at Hawthorne Christian. I'm sure there's been a little bit of an evolution there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, And it was interesting too, because like we mentioned earlier, just how how quick things go and you don't see transitional points. Um, You don't necessarily see them in all their magnitude. But I I was thinking back on the time that this story developed and it was really um, occurred right along the lines of kind of my own deconstruction. Mm. Um, you know, the faith tradition that I was raised in, uh, you know, probably pretty similar to, to, to you, Glenn, um, was this idea that, you know, the gospel itself is God requires blood in order to forgive. Um, and so looking back, it's, you know, it's easy to see how that enforced this kind of vengeful stand for my rights, um, at least some form of like, if you wronged me, you have to pay me back in some way. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as I started kind of this journey of deconstruction, which, which happened very slowly. Um, but, you know, I would ask the question or you would hear in, in a church service or something, you know, well, this idea of like, well, how can a good God um, punish, you know, a 13 year old for yeah. all eternity, just because they don't believe in him. Yeah. And the answer that was usually thrown back at me was, and it was fairly convincing for a while until it wasn't, mm-hmm. um, was this idea that, well, you know, God's ways are higher than ours, you know, so like we can't understand. Yeah. And I think a huge earth shattering moment for me was the realization that yeah, his ways are higher than ours because like, what are my ways? What are our ways? Yeah. You know, it's anger, jealousy, violence, scapegoating, these like endless cycles of war and genocide that we see. Um, And so I started to ask myself like, what, what ways are higher than that? (laughs) And it certainly seems to me that like mercy and wholeness and laying down of my claims for the purpose of peace would be a higher way than, you know, this retributive um, cycle that I think we find ourselves in as humans. And so, you know, the question really became like, well, which, which God then looks more like me? Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I think the one who I was taught who says, you know, well, you just wait, you're going to get yours or like, you better say you're sorry or you're going to pay for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. That God seems a lot like me at my worst. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that's not the person that we see in Jesus who says on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. So like, yes, God's ways are higher than ours. Yeah. Um and so I was really, you know, digging through that, that kind of concept. And now that's not to say that, you know, obviously a victim of abuse or a person who's being intentionally harmed, like forgiveness is not about stay where you are, don't get help or, or, you know, accept that you were part of the problem or anything like that. You know, to me, that's kind of like next step, higher level reconciliation type sure, questions. Sure. And, you know, safety and therapy are you know, really important before we delve into a lot of those when we're talking about really serious trauma. But, but the question of forgiveness to me, um, you know, really was more about like releasing a claim to victimhood. Mm. Um, and I think that's the, the very definition of like therapeutic forgiveness where, you know, I'm releasing the space in my head that I've rented out to this claim that I have against you. Mm. Um, and in doing so, I'm, I'm forgiving a person for my own healing. Mm. Um, and, you know, I borrow kind of this 
this these models of forgiveness in the way that I think about it now um, from Professor Peter Robinson, who is um, a law professor at Pepperdine. But you know, he talks about how how much our feelings affect are are affected by what we think about. And so when we're when we're in in this kind of pre-forgiveness mode. 90% of the story we're telling ourselves is about what was done to me and telling ourselves I'm the victim of what was done to me. Whereas if we can turn that on its head and tell a story about something was done to me, here's how I grew out of that. Mm. Um, you know, you're telling more of a hero story than a victim story. Yeah. And so, um, you know, all of that kind of tied in with my deconstruction and, and my belief that, okay, like if God is really good and I'm really limited to this like thick human skull and a, a limited amount of time on earth with like hardly any clue about what's actually going on or what's real, what's not. Mm. Um, like, I think God is good enough to realize that I'm probably going to get it wrong. And, um, and I don't think that he needs to beat somebody up to forgive me. Um, because I just think that's a horrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had this, like growing up was always like the, the gospel was more or less that, you know, Jesus, Jesus died to save me from his angry dad, who's going to beat me up. But instead yeah. of beating me up, he beat up, Jesus, there was this idea of like forgiveness with stipulations was like bred yeah. into my mind, right? Like if God will forgive me, if I say the prayer, you know, God will yeah. forgive me if I quote, give my life to him, you know, God will yeah. forgive me if all these things. And like that led me to this place where I remember growing up being uh, in church, we went to Hawthorne gospel uh, for a while, which was right on the you know campus, obviously of the school. Yeah. And I can remember like every Sunday there would be not like an altar call where they have you come up to the front, but where they would say, no, if you're going to give your life to Christ today, raise your hand. And I would raise my hand every week because I just wanted to make sure like that God saw me yeah. so that I didn't get his wrath if I were Absolutely. to die that night or, you know, whatever. But that really bred, bred into just my own outlook on forgiveness, like in my regular life, like I will forgive somebody if yeah. they do this, I will forgive somebody if they apologize, but like now, like I look at my daughter and you know, I have a three-year-old daughter, you have kids. Like yeah. I would never withhold forgiveness from my daughter. Like I would never make my daughter do anything, even ask me for forgiveness before I forgive her. Like I could never imagine withholding something from her like that. Yeah. And that's me no as a father. Like how, how can God be, how could God be worse than me? <laughs> Absolutely. And that, and that was a, that was a huge moment just the having kids for me, because like, I started to ask myself, is there anything that my daughter could do, whether she's three or whether she grows up, you know, to be 35 or 50 or whatever, like, is there anything that she could ever do where I would say, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And I'm fine. If you go suffer for all eternity. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Never, never. You know, and I think you're exactly right. And that's where for so many years I gave God kind of this, um, you know, this like bullshit pass of like, you get to be a Nazi, you get to be this horrible, right. you know, bronze age torturer, but I have to be good. Like I have to forgive my people. I have right. to love people I don't like. And yet you can, you know, like, and it just, yeah, it, you know, from a, from a father's standpoint, um, there was just no way. And, and so, and I hear that from a lot of people in terms of kind of turning that on its head is like, yeah, when you have kids, it just opens you up to this whole new, uh, this whole new world of the kind of love that's possible and, and a pure, love that isn't based on performance at all. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things too, that really, you talk, talk about like having kids. I remember when, when Jordan was born, she went into the uh, NICU for a little while. And I remember yeah. Dana was, she was out cold. She was in so much pain. And I was down there by myself, you know, in the, NIC, in the NICU looking at this little baby in this tank with these little tiny hands and she could wrap her hand like around my finger. And I remember I remember, and I've told this on the podcast before, having this like 
crisis of faith as I was sitting there, like just beginning the kind of deconstruction type stuff and just asking a lot of questions. I remember thinking to myself, how, how, how in the world could God look at this little infant and say that this baby has a quote sin nature. And yeah. so if this baby does not grow up and hit the age of accountability, whatever that is, but we've had say, that term thrown around a lot. Play. Maybe she's going to be 15, 16, <laughs> whatever, whatever the age is, not, not, not after, not before, but that age, yeah. you know, like if she doesn't say this, this prayer and believe the right things that this baby is doomed for hell. And I remember thinking to myself, like, if that's who God is, yeah, I don't think I can do this anymore. And like, yeah. that was a huge moment for me. Cause like I, I have, by that point, I've been through Bible college, been through seminary once I was in the second round of seminary and like having this crisis of faith. I'm like, I have to figure this out because I, this is not something I can just ignore. I have to, I have to dive deeper into this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a a big moment for me too. I mean, probably the, the moment I first felt like a dad was, uh, which, you know, my, my firstborn, uh, kind of ended up being an emergency C-section and everything was cool, but like, that, you know, up until that point, it's just like a blur, especially, I mean, obviously for a dad, it's, it's a different experience than for a mom who is, Mm. you know, so connected. Um, But that moment, I mean, Natalie was not even a minute old. Mm. And when she grabbed my finger, it was just like, that was, you know, that, that just, that's a change of your life. And, and like you said, you know, I just got to the point where like, I didn't want to be morally superior to the God that I was supposed to like be living right. in mission to. Yes. And so I just kind of got to the point where I was like, if you're not better than this, then like, I, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't want anything. I don't want anything to do with you. And yeah. to be honest, and I, I tell people this a lot, like, I'm still probably an, a good atheist, like three days a week, <laughs> where I'm just like, this is just a cosmic mistake. <laughs> and like, you know, like, like the whole, I don't have you seen True Detective with Matthew, Matthew McConaughey, where he's just like, the best thing we can do is like, you know, walk into extinction as brothers <laughs> and sisters opting right. out of a raw deal. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, at least two days a week, I think that, but, um, but really again, like that, just, you know, the relationship that I have with my kids and my wife, like there is something that rings deep and holy about that, that, um, and, and I think too, like the way that I grew up, you know, it was this idea that like, okay, if you were going to be a pastor, like that was something that was worth doing. Like if you were going to be a missionary, that was something where God was going to call you or like every, you know, for a period of time, I wanted to be a worship leader and mm. those kinds of things. And I've really settled in on this idea of like being human is holy, you know, like every right. day, like you said, this life that we've got that, that just changes so fast that, um, this dichotomy between how slow a minute moves and like how fast years move. Um, Just like planning myself in that. And I've been so much happier because, Mm -hmm. you know, another thing about the church experience that I really struggled with was aside from, you know, this retributive idea of God was this idea that like nothing I ever did was ever good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in the nonprofit world for a while and worked with a, um, a really good organization that does really good work, um, but very, very conservative, um, religiously speaking, socially, all that kind of thing. And I had to raise support as part of what I was doing. And so I was asking people for money, like friends and family and organizations and meeting people and like doing all this networking and all these things. And I remember like several people speaking into my life. And this was really maybe the the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of like me letting go mm-hmm. of what I had been raised with, because like I still really wanted to believe. Um, and like having several people tell me like, you'll never be in God's debt. God mm-hmm. will always come through for you. Like if you're living in faith, if you're stepping out, um, you know, if you're praying over these letters individually, as you send them out, you know, doing all these things. And then like, all of a sudden I was $12,000 in credit card debt mm-hmm. 
had a baby being born. I had no money for medical bills, like had a mortgage, had all these things. And was like thinking to myself, you know, the, the scripture kept hitting me over and over again. Like you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Um, so like, how about supporting my family? You know, if you can just make this happen. <laughs> right. Um, and then I felt like the older brother in the, the prodigal son story, you know, like, you know, just give me a goat to party with my friends. Yeah. But at the same time, I was just so let down by God um, that I really started to step away from like, maybe it doesn't work that way. Mm. And, and part of it too was when a lot of these things failed and I went back to those people that had told me, oh, just step out in faith. God's always going to take care of you. At the last minute, you'll get a check in your mailbox for the exact amount that you need to cover your mortgage. Mm. And the thing that they said was, well, like, did you pray? How, how much, how much time are you spending each day in prayer? Or like, do you have a sin issue that you haven't dealt with or, and all these things. And I'm like, why is it my fault? (laughs) Like you're giving him the pass. That's bullshit. You know, Mm -hmm. like, why does he get the pass when he was the one that's not living up to his end of the bargain? And so I don't know if all that makes sense, but like, I was finally like, he's, he's got to be better than all of you know, I, I qualify that with, if he's there, um, he's gotta be better than like constantly leading me on to just do more and more and more. And then being let down by my own shit anyway, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, and that ca- it causes a lot of shame. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, that, that kind of mentality when it's drilled into your head, I know for myself, it's like every time something went wrong in my life, this being up until just a couple of years ago, because it's hard to to shake that when you were raised in it. But every time something would go wrong in my life, it's like, oh, I must've done something wrong. So maybe I need to pray more. If I get up at six o'clock to read my Bible, I should probably get up at five 30 and start reading my Bible every morning. Maybe I haven't gone to church enough. Maybe I should up my tithe. You know, maybe I have some kind of hidden sin in my life that God isn't happy with. And I was like, just always constantly looking inward, which in and of itself is not always a bad thing. It's it's right. good to look inside. But when you always think that everything that's going wrong in your life, is because of you, like your life would be perfect if you would just get your act together and do all the right things, hit the right buttons on the vending machine and God will spit out the candy bar that you want. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was a, um, and interestingly enough, so by the time that experience kind of came to an end and, and I was was moving on, um, I was really in a bad spot, like depression, um, and I didn't even know it. Like it was it was my wife and actually my mom that were just like, "You are miserable," and I was like, "No, I'm not. Like I'm doing God's work. I'm you know." Um, but as that experience went on. I started to kind of accept, um, and this was probably right around the time Love Wins came out, Rob Bell's book. And so like I had read that and was really, was really searching. And, you know, I got to a point where it was really easy for me to accept the idea that God forgives everyone, but I still had this feeling that he didn't like me. Mm-hmm. And man, like that, when I realized that I was actually watching a Brian Zond message on Mm. YouTube. Um, And one of the things that he talked about was like this idea that if Jesus was here, he would like me, Mm. you know, like he would want to go have dinner with me. Mm. And like that broke me down so hard And, you know, as we talk about forgiveness in in this broad context, like the hardest person for me to let go of these claims against this like shame of, you know, you've messed up, you're not good enough, you don't live up. Like it was me. That was the last person I had to forgive. And and I think ultimately, you know, and and in the context of um, the wages of grace as well, I mean, I think the main character ends up finding that out that like mm-hmm. what he was holding inside was not actually about somebody else. It was about him. And yeah. until he let that go and like he came to terms with what his life was and who he was as a person, he was not going to be free. And so, um, 
you know, obviously that's still an ongoing journey, um, especially for a creative type person, because, you know, my negative voices are very loud, uh, just -hmm. generally speaking. Um, My friend, uh, Jamie Jean, that I, that I did video with, like, he always says that when you're in your own head, you're behind enemy lines. Yeah. So like, (laughs) you know, it's still a struggle, but at least that realization of like, I'm, I'm not the worst person in the world. You know, like I'm not some, some person who's undeserving of love, undeserving of God's um, attention even uh, was huge. And and that, and that comes, that comes full circle with like having kids too, you know, this idea of like, you know, what do they have to do to earn my favor? What do they have to do to earn my attention or to earn like, it's ridiculous. It's such a crazy um, dysfunctional horrible, hurtful system, uh, you know, to, to introduce a child into. And so, um, yeah, that's yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Love wind was big for me too. That book uh, really yeah. opened up a whole lot of stuff, um, for me and, uh, just, just a lot of questions because, you know, Reg Rob Bell is just, he's like the question guy. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. always give a lot of answers, but he gives a lot of questions. And that was, yeah. that was big for me. Like I remember, like I was just brought up to understand how, you know, in one specific way, God's forgiveness in one specific way in that book. Like I, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like there's other ways to think about this. And then I thought to myself, well, there's other ways to think about this. Are there other ways to think about other things you know, yeah. as well? And that kind of like, opened up a whole nother rabbit hole into thinking about the Bible. Yeah. What about LGBTQ people? What about things like abortion? What about like all these things? Like, have I been indoctrinated or have I really been educated? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and and that, that was a big turning point too. And, you know, to go back to like high school and and the upbringing stuff, I mean, I will say about Hawthorne, um, I feel like I got a really good education there. Hmm. Um, Met some people who, who will be friends for life, had some great teachers. Um, So like, it wasn't all bad. Um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but one of the things that, that I kind of took away from that time was, um, if you're not reading something <laughs> that's like, where you've already reached the predetermined conclusion you're supposed to come to, <laughs> right. and it's like dangerous, you know, yep. because you're going to start to, well, like, you know, well, if, if this part of the Bible isn't true, like if Noah's Ark didn't literally happen, how can you trust the rest of it? And I'm over there like asking myself, why would I want to? <laughs> you know? exactly. like, Noah's Ark is a terrible story. <laughs> right. And like, and like, why do I want to devote my life to, to, to something if it's not real like if it's if it and and this is another thing too especially in talking to you know people who are still kind of in when they want to know about my deconstruction and when they want to know about like you know where are you with your faith and everything like I just Mm. tell people like it didn't work for me yeah you know I mean it just it it became as simple as that like it wasn't something that was feeding anything good into my life Mm. and the fact that I'm outside of it and have been um for six or seven years now like fully outside of like church and everything I am so much happier yeah so much more free um than I was as a slave to like we talked about just like that hamster wheel of carrot and stick um not living up to god's expectations and like when i finally let all that shit go was when my life was just like oh man like i can breathe (laughs) you know it was such a good feeling that's right yeah we haven't been to church in going on almost four years now. Yeah. And uh, that was something I never, ever, ever thought I would say. <laughs> Those yeah. words would ever come out of my mouth. Uh, but, no, no. you know, especially yeah. like I look back to like when I when I pastored a church and I remember one of the things my wife and I talked about a lot after I left my position there was like, there were so many things about being a pastor that I loved. Yeah. But at the same time, I felt like I was this caged animal. Like Absolutely. I was not... I wasn't allowed to cross certain boundaries in terms of my, um, my theology. I wasn't allowed to ask sure. questions. I wasn't allowed to explore to the point where like, I mean, I, I pastored a reformed church. So it was a, it was a very uh, theologically conservative place. Sure. And so they had very strict boundaries, but I can remember like pressing up against 
some like minor things. And like after the service, you know, having an elder meet me in my office and be like, you know, you can't talk about that, you know, and maybe you should read up more on this. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like, I, I'm the one that went to seminary. Not, 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 not trying to like toot my own horn here, but I'm the one that went to seminary. Like, do yeah. you just want somebody who's going to tell you what you already believe? Yep. Or do you want somebody who has actually been trained how to read the Bible and maybe challenge you to read it differently than you've always thought was right? Yeah. Once I realized that like, I was just expected to get up there and sing the same song and teach the same things that everybody was already signed their name onto the dotted line about. I'm like, this is incredibly boring. And I, I don't know, I don't want to do this anymore, but then church became like that as well, because even yeah. going to church, like being out in the congregation, sitting in the pews, like there's this expectation around you that the pastor is going to say the things that you already right. believe. And you're just going to say amen to it because you believe it. Yeah. But like, is, is that what this is about? Is that what Jesus did? Did Jesus just go around trying to get amens out of people or did he challenge people? And yeah. That was, that was like a huge awakening for me. That was another huge moment for me because one of the um, kind of scripture karate's that was always used against me as far as like, you know, whoever I was listening to at the time. Be scripture it, karate, I like that. Else. <laughs> yeah, it was this whole like, oh, well, well you know, uh, oh, that's people who just want to have their ears tickled. Yeah. And finally yes. it dawned on me, like I'm sitting in this pew every week paying this guy money to tell me that what I already believe is right. Like who is having their ears tickled? Yes, exactly. That person or the person who is like willing to give up everything to find some modicum of truth. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah, um, no, I mean, you're exactly right. And, and it's so backwards. And then, and then, you know, the churches that in the Nashville area that we were involved in, you know, like so many of them ended up becoming like self-help messages every week mm. and it was just like and, and i'm not one of those like you know well just preach the scriptures that's what i want to hear but yeah. like it was just like this is like life coaching this isn't church you know yeah. and oddly enough like if there was you know like an eastern orthodox church near me we might still go to church mm. you know yeah. like I still, I still would love to be connected with, uh, with a faith tradition and especially one that's 2000 something years old. Um, so I think, you know, in all different walks, like for different times of your life, for different reasons, you know, there's good and bad of it, but, but yeah, for me, um, I did it for 25 plus years and it just, just didn't, didn't work like it was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how about your, like, how does your family feel about that? And that could probably be a whole nother discussion, but do you have yeah. any, like, does your, is your family on board and supportive? Have you have, has that caused any rifts or? <laughs> it definitely has. I mean, I'm sure one or two of them will listen to this podcast mm. um, because they're very supportive of me. Um, yeah. It's been a journey, but it's been cool. I mean, there's mm. definitely still some topics with certain family members that I can't broach. Sure. Um, you know, there have definitely been some rifts, um, where, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, the good thing with my parents at least, um, mm -hmm. which I guess I'm going to get them in trouble for, for saying this now, um, you know, I maybe dragged them along on this journey mm -hmm. a, a long ways after me. And we still see a lot of things differently, but, um, like their biggest thing is like, are you, are you still like following Jesus, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, um, to me, whatever kind of wherever I end up going, Jesus is what I come back to. And, yeah. um, I actually shared this on another, uh, to another friend recently, but like probably the, the biggest thing that saved my faith was looking into Sikhism. Mm. Um, and there's this incredible video uh, that I've posted a few times on my blog that just kind of has like um, some of the basic tenets of Sikhism. And like one of the things that they talk about is, you know, like we're all God's children and he loves us all. And yeah. so like wherever you're planted in a sense, bloom, you mm -hmm. know, if, if you're born into a Christian family, be the best Christian that you can be. If you're born into a Muslim family, be yeah. the best Muslim that you can be. Don't try to reach for like this grass is greener, somebody else, you know, it's, and it's not to say that other faith traditions aren't helpful, but sure. it just helped me in terms of like, 
you know, Jesus is where I was planted and I can see him all over the world in yeah. these other faith traditions, um, like Sikhism, for instance. Uh, but, um, but yeah, but I'm very comfortable still saying that I love Jesus and that I'm a Jesus follower. Um, it probably looks a lot different for me than it does for lots and <laughs> lots of people. But, um, like I said earlier, I think he's good enough. I think he's loving enough that he's cool with, me where I am on my journey and like meeting me there. So yeah, Barbara Brown Teller wrote a book called uh, Holy Envy. And she talks in the book about how she was a world religions teacher. And so she had to teach students, obviously all about these different religions. And she was yeah. before that she was an Episcopal, Episcopal pre, uh, priest. And so she goes into this, this role as a teacher and she's learning all these things about all these different religions. And she said, I found myself having a sense of envy towards these different things and these religions that I really thought were useful. Yeah. I should, even though I would go to these places during the day, I always came home to Jesus at night. Like he yeah. was the one I always came back to. And she said, I felt like exploring other religions. I didn't explore them because I thought I wanted to become a Muslim or I wanted to become a Hindu, but because those things helped make me a better follower of Christ. Absolutely. In some way, shape or form. So I think at the end of the day, I think that's what it's all about. It's about, you know, Christianity can help a Jewish person be a better Jew. I yeah. just talked to AJ Levine a couple of weeks ago and she was saying that like, so I really encourage Jewish people to study the Christian texts because it can make them better Jewish people. And yeah. just like studying the Jewish texts can make Christians better Christians. No, for sure. And that was, it was such a, um, it was another eye opener for me when I started looking into like the Sikh faith and everything. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and this idea that maybe, maybe I have limited God very much and maybe I'm not the final arbiter for what he can do and like where he can show up. <laughs> what a novel idea, right? Yeah. You know, and from the standpoint that, you know, here you have this culture that's, you know, dominated by this, this caste system. And, you know, if you're born a ditch digger, you die a ditch digger, your kids yeah. are going to be ditch diggers, you know, all this thing. And then all of a sudden, like after thousands of years of this, you have this guy that shows up that's like, we're all princes and princesses in God's eyes. And like, mm. we're all going to eat a meal together. Yeah. I'm like, good God, if that's not Jesus showing up, like, <laughs> I don't know what is, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> so right. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. Finding, yeah. And that was another big Rob Bell thing that he taught me was, you know, being, being free to like find and claim beauty wherever it is. Yep. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's been a big eye opener for me, especially since leaving church. Like I always thought, you know, God is most found in the church, you know, just yeah. what I was kind of trained to think. But now that I haven't been to church in so many years, I'm really finding that God is in many different places, whether it be yeah. around the dinner table with my family, yeah. out in the backyard, mowing the lawn, you know, yeah. uh, talking to a neighbor, like God is literally everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, Hey, Brandon, we are just about out of time and I got to clock back in for work in a few minutes. Uh, but I could, I could talk to you all day, man. We have to do this again. Yeah, for sure. This is a lot of fun. Thanks again for having me for sure. And where can people go to, uh, connect with you online? Uh, so I'm on, uh, Facebook, Brandon Dragon author, uh, Instagram. Uh, you can go to my website, brandondragon.com and also, uh, the wages of grace.com. Uh, and you can find links to, uh, <laughs> There's my parents' phone ringing. There you go. <laughs> no uh, worries. <laughs> you can find links to uh, everywhere that you can buy the book. Awesome. I'll put all the links in the show notes and we'll do this again soon. Thank you so much, Glenn. Take care. Cool, Later. Youth group lock-ins are a really strange concept that youth group leaders seem to really like. It's like, let's take some repressed hormonal teenagers and put them in a church and hope they find Jesus overnight. Like Jesus is a ghost hiding in the church, and if you just stay long enough, you'll find him. But in my experience, the only thing you find is your sexuality. This one's for the kids who have their sexual awakening at the youth group lock-in. It must have been confusing, and I hope you're doing well. Be kind to yourself. Take care of that kid. You're not what they said about you, and a loser to button up can't send you.